George, who is out somewhere there in the dark, who is good to me, whom I revile, who can keep learning the games we play as quickly as I can change them, who can make me happy and I do not wish to be happy. Yes, I do wish to be happy. George and Martha. Sad, sad, sad. Ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Business, the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing classic cinema. I'm Kristen, joined by the lovely, amazing, and always right Samantha Ellis. And <laughs> this week, we are finding a reason to talk about Elizabeth Taylor. Not that one needs a reason to talk about Elizabeth Taylor, but we are. And we are doing a Liz Taylor top three. Let's just get the elephant out of the room. Liz Taylor is a larger than life figure. We've talked about many a larger-than-life man. You know, we just did a whole series about Elvis, who is the king of being larger-than-life. But you don't see that a lot with women. But then you have Liz Taylor. Everything about Liz was flamboyant. The diamonds, the fashion, the amount of husbands. And that often undermines a lot of her work, which is why I'm excited to get to be doing this top three. Samantha, where do you come at Elizabeth Taylor? Because you are a f- far more of an aficionado on Liz than... I am. So what is it about her that draws you to her? I love that question because that's a question that I've been thinking about all day in preparation for this. You're so right. She is larger than life. She's the epitome of a legend. She's just one of those one in a billion people who was meant to be a star. She was literally born with the right genes to give her violet eyes and two rows of eyelashes. And she looks like Elizabeth Taylor, and she's looked like Elizabeth Taylor her whole life. I don't think she could have not been a star. She just exudes that perfect old Hollywood glamour. I truly believe that she was the prettiest old movie star to ever exist, above Marilyn, which I know is big talk, but I really believe that about Elizabeth. She just had such a unique, beautiful quality to her. As far as her work goes, she has just such a gentleness, but a fire within her, almost like Grace Kelly. Very demure, but in those really heated moments, you can see such emotion in her performances. There are just so many things that I find that I have in common with her, like our love of jewelry and our love of men. I just love her. What I find interesting when you compare her to Marilyn, we're still seeing reevaluations of Marilyn today. And yet, Liz Taylor, I always got the vibe coming at her career late in life. And remember when when she was still alive, I don't feel that we felt the need to reevaluate Elizabeth Taylor's career. I wonder if it's because she lived so long that she was able to reinvent herself. We don't even get a lot of biopics about her. There's a couple, Lindsay Lowen's played her, Sherilyn Fenn's played her, but she's not as iconic on screen as Marilyn. You hit the nail on the head. I think it's because she lived so long and she really hasn't been gone all that long. She's been gone, what, 11 years? The Elizabeth Taylor biopics are definitely going to come. They're just going to come in the coming decades when people are really reflecting on her. And they're still trying to find people to make biopics about. So I definitely think Elizabeth Taylor, it's just going to keep happening just like Marilyn. She is 
of the level of Marilyn. And she had such a crazy life filled with so many fascinating things to make a movie about. So she's definitely going to get more. And to look at her career, because it's so extensive, she did a lot of everything. She did film, she did television. She had a whole secondary career into the 70s, 80s, and 90s doing TV movies, which opens her up to a far wider audience. Even the Elizabeth Taylor estate has recently started a podcast with Katy Perry talking about Elizabeth Taylor. Did you know that? Yeah. No, I knew that Miley Cyrus did a special on her and narrated her life for the anniversary of the founding of her AIDS Foundation, I believe. And there are a lot of very famous Elizabeth Taylor AIDS Foundation ambassadors. Definitely a lot of current people involved with that organization. They're definitely staying fresh and current when it comes to her. A lot of people talk about comparison. Who do you compare someone like Marilyn to? Liz Taylor, the obvious comparison nowadays is Angelina Jolie. Both very beautiful women, both having very public private lives, both became philanthropists and goodwill ambassadors. That also helps to create longevity for an audience because if you can easily compare yourself to another star of today, it's why we do this show, making these stars relevant. That also is another point in her favor. It's actually funny that you mentioned this because I know during the Maryland episode, we talked a lot about Kim Kardashian. If I had to pick a modern Elizabeth Taylor, for me, it would be Kim because of all the marriages, all the scandals, the love of over-the-top decor and jewelry and fashion, and the fact that they are very much underestimated beautiful women. Okay, I would maybe give you that. Though, and all Kim the kids. K, and all the kids, yes. <laughs> so Kim K does not have the film and television well, the film career, at least. True. That's, That's very true. true. That's yes. the one thing that I would say is absent. I did hear that they were friends towards the end of her life. So at least she gets the Elizabeth seal of approval. I'm always fascinated by who was friends with Elizabeth Taylor. Colin I found Farrell was Colin Farrell. Too. Yeah. That so. one's always amazing for me to hear. He talks about whether true or not. He's the only one that can tell us at this point. But apparently they had this romantic relationship and he claims that she was the love of his life and that they might have gotten married. I don't know if he's just bragging at this point because it's not like Liz is going to be able to defend herself. But regardless, I would be all for adding Colin Farrell's last name to the long winding list of Liz Taylor men. I'm curious, who is your favorite Liz Taylor husband and why? Ooh, that's tough. Of course, media and everybody wants you to be the Burton fan, and it's close. I do believe that he was the love of her life. However, I would say my favorite husband, as far as the husband that I want and the husband that I wish she continued with, would definitely be Mike Todd. Okay. I was thinking for a second you were going to say Eddie Fisher. Controversial choice. I have nothing against Eddie. Well, actually, maybe I do have some things against Eddie Fisher (laughs) being such a Debbie Reynolds stan. But I think they were cute. I'm more of a Mike Todd girl because he spoiled her. He obviously adored her. He just seemed so good to her and so nice to her. We'll see, though. Back then, it was hard to really be an out-and-out good guy when you have the DiMaggio's and the Franciosa's, as we've talked about. There's always Franciosa's. For me, I'm a Burton stan. The fact that they tried so hard to make it work, getting married twice. If you've ever read the book Furious Love, 
about their relationship and just read the poems and the love letters that Richard Burton wrote to her. Regardless, they had some fire and some passion for each other. And I support all of that. If we're going just off of aesthetics, and I hate to say that I like this period because the pictures are so pretty and we know that it was not a good relationship. Nikki Hilton. The photos are so beautiful. That wedding dress is iconic. Of course, that marriage was incredibly toxic. If we're just looking at where were they the most pretty couple, going to go with that one. (laughs) I would agree with that. Nikki was the worst to her. I've actually teared up reading her talking about what she went through with that one. She had so many husbands and they were all in her life for different reasons. So it's so fascinating to learn about each one. Before we get into the top three, I have to ask you this question. I always think of Liz Taylor in a similar way to your beloved Jaja. Why is that either a right or wrong assumption? I believe that's a right assumption. They were two of the most glamorous and extravagant, and they attracted publicity like flies to honey. They were otherworldly beautiful. It's really the same as the threads that bind Elizabeth and Kim. All the time people make Jaja and Kim comparisons. They were just three strong, glamorous, incredible, notorious women. (laughs) (laughs) Notorious women is our tagline. Let's get into our top three. What was your criteria for this? I'm a very aesthetic person when it comes to Elizabeth Taylor's work. I definitely have a really soft spot for the ones that she looks the most beautiful in. And I hate to diminish any of her work because of that, because her acting is really amazing in most of her films. But I have a lot of them that more people need to know about and ones that I always gravitate back to. So that's basically my top three. I'm excited to hear yours because you are far more well-versed in Liz than I am. I feel like my list is kind of basic. With one maybe surprising choice, I feel like I'm coming into this with a bit of an underappreciation. I need to work on this, though. Thankfully, TCM showed a bunch of her movies over the week, so I will have some stuff to watch. If you've listened to any of our top threes, you know that we don't talk about a movie until it's gotten to the highest point on our list. In Spirit of Liz Taylor, we will be saying Burton if one of us has a movie that is higher on the list, and then we will talk about it when we get to that specific number. Let's jump into it with number three. My number three is actually Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Oh, okay. Fantastic choice, though. (laughs) Starting out with something that Samantha doesn't have. Yay. This is a basic choice. This is a movie that I didn't really have a lot of appreciation for until the last couple of years. You could say that it happened during my great Paul Newman mental transformation that I underwent a couple years ago. I rewatched this as much as this is Newman being filled first. This is really Liz Taylor's movie in a lot of ways. Liz Taylor plays Maggie, who is married to Paul Newman's character, who is literally a big, beautiful blonde dude named Brick. They have a very fraught relationship that is not sexually fulfilled because if you've read the original Tennessee Williams play, it's because Brick is gay. But because it is the 1960s, we cannot have that problem. So we just 
allude to it at the end. You can't have a movie with Paul Newman and Liz Taylor not hooking up. So spoiler alert, the movie ends with them having sex because the 60s. What I really appreciated rewatching this movie recently for the Liz Taylor of it all is that it's a movie that understands that she's beautiful and shows the curse of that. Maggie is completely underestimated and mistreated by everybody in Brick's family, including his brother and sister-in-law, played by Jack Carson and Madeline Sherwood, respectively. They have a gaggle of children and the kids are horrible, constantly asking Maggie when she's going to have a baby. She's just completely not seen as this epitome of Southern domesticity in that time period in comparison to Madeline Sherwood's character, who's always pregnant. I love that element of it, especially in that she is trying to buck convention. The only person that really seems to appreciate her is Brick's dad, Big Daddy, played by Burl Ives. Just watching Elizabeth Taylor, the camera certainly has moments where it objectifies her. She's in a slip at one point, and there's a lot of bottom shots where it's looking up at her. She's in such command of the character, just stalks the screen and is so dominant that honestly, you're just wondering how the line of men just hasn't started to the left or women. She's that sexually charged as a character that anybody would be attracted to her. Even some gay men would have been attracted to her. It's that pervasive, but it's a role where she seems in on the character. That didn't always happen in her career where she not only got the opportunity to play characters that she wanted to play, but the characters that mocked the Elizabeth Taylor persona. And I think it comes through really, really well in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. This was a role of a lifetime for her. Everybody says Cleopatra is the Elizabeth Taylor role, but if you're talking quintessential Elizabeth Taylor films, this is really it. Not only that, as a film, it probably goes down as one of the top 10 best written of any film that I've seen. It's extremely well-written. It always pulls me in. Sometimes it's hard for me to sit through movies, and this one, every time I watch it, it's totally riveting. And I agree, Elizabeth really exudes the sex appeal. I'm sure there were so many men back then thinking, Paul Newman, what are you doing? (laughs) When it becomes even more audacious to watch her in this role, considering that they started filming... The day her husband, Mike Todd, who you mentioned earlier, died in a plane crash. So she had to make this movie, much like Jean Harlow when she did Red Dust, had to make this movie under the most extreme tragedy in her life. And to see those moments of sadness and pain on her face, there's almost a double layer to it, especially if you were a fan of hers in that time period watching this, knowing what she had undergone what she would continue to undergo as the years went on after this. It's just utterly bonkers to think about. This was her second of five Oscar nominations. She did not win, which I don't know, Samantha. Do you think she should have won that year? I'd have to see what her competition was. 58. I can tell you where her competition was. Yes, please do. The nominees were Elizabeth Taylor for Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, Susan Hayward for I Want to Live, Shirley MacLaine for Some Came Running, Rosalind Russell for Anti-Mame, and Deborah Carr for Separate Tables. Do you remember who won? I will tell you. It was Susan Hayward for I Want to Live, (sighs) which if we're talking about hindsight being 2020, how many people remember I Want to Live, sorry Susan Hayward stands, versus Cat on Hot Roof? 
That is a very fair point. I haven't seen I Want to Live. I've wanted to. Doesn't sound like a super great year other than Elizabeth. Not really. Samantha, take us into year number three. All right. Well, I keep flipping back and forth in my head, but I think I'm going to go with a very early rule of hers. This is a fairly deep cut when it comes to Elizabeth Taylor. My number three pick is A Date with Judy from 1948. It was an honorable mention, almost made my list. Okay, awesome. The thing that I really love about her in this film is how catty she is and how she already really sinks into this character this bratty teenager, but she has these internal struggles with her dad and you see all of it. It's such a complex performance considering the fact that it's really just a teeny bopper musical type of movie. And she looks so pretty. She's 16, 17, and she looks a million times prettier than I can make myself now at 25. So I'm very upset by this (laughs) every time I watch that movie. Jane Powell is supposed to be the one that holds your attention because it's really her film and she's the one singing in it. But Elizabeth really steals it. She's just so dynamic. She really is. This is a film that has a relatively problematic classic film story in that her and Jane Powell play these sparring young women that both seem to fall in love with a presumably 40-year-old soda jerk played by Robert Stack. And the movie says Robert Stack is apparently able to date one of them. And he is very charming opposite Elizabeth Taylor. And it's impossible for me not to ignore the fact that she is a child when she's making this movie. And I want to say that I had heard a story about while she was making this film. I cannot tell you where the story came from or who told it, but that the director of the film was very obvious about commenting on how mature she looked. It had to be difficult to look like Elizabeth Taylor as a child, as a teenager, and not face just chronic objectification from the very male-dominated pre-Me Too world of this era, which we constantly have to rectify with every time we talk about that time period. You're totally right that regardless of that objectification and that plot line, The Technicolor just does her wonders. She's got some beautiful, beautiful costumes. We don't often get to see a lot of movies where she got to play just a teenage girl. This is a movie where you're right. She's totally catty. She's a little boy crazy. She's not playing this adult shrunk down to child size like she usually played or this tragic little girl that needs to be cared for. She was a teen. Right. Her whole life, she really had to deal with that kind of objectification. Even as a child, when she was auditioning for films, just less than 10 years old, they tried to wipe off her makeup, take off all her mascara, but she wasn't wearing any because she was just so naturally beautiful so early on. Really, as soon as the braces came off after National Velvet, (laughs) that was it for her. She was an adult, very similarly to Judy Garland. Watching this movie, too, it's just a real great example of, yes, maybe it's not a role that's challenging her as a performer, but that is age appropriate for the most part. And Jane Powell also was stuck in that position for a lot of years, too, playing children and young girls because she was so small. I don't know if you know, but I have to hope that they bonded a little bit in that regard. They did. Jane was actually a bridesmaid at her first wedding, and Elizabeth was a bridesmaid at Jane's first wedding. 
but each of them got married eight times. So they just stopped after the first one. They're like, okay, we're not going to be each other's bridesmaids anymore. This is going to happen way too much. I love this. I love this. (laughs) But they were friends. Yeah. I'm glad you got to include this movie. It's a deep cut that does not get nearly enough love. Definitely. I just have to throw in her chemistry with Leon Ames. I love Leon Ames and everything. And from Meet Me in St. Louis to Postman Always Rings Twice. He's so good in everything he's in. And this is no exception. You really see the layers to her performance, even in a teen movie as a teen, you see that complicated relationship. And it's so great. I love it. It walked so that Natalie Wood's daddy issues in Rebel Without a Cause could fly. That is so true, except Elizabeth has the rich girl issues in this movie, which uh, Judy That's the story of her life. She always had rich girl issues in a lot of her movies. (laughs) My number two is a film that I'm pretty sure is not going to be on your list at all and probably would not be considered one of Elizabeth Taylor's better performances. But I'm going to put it on this list because if you know me, you know that I would include it. It's her role as Amy March in 1949's Little Women. Exactly. It's not the popular choice. It's not the popular Little Women. I have a real soft spot for the 1949 Little Women, directed by Mervyn Leroy. Liz Taylor was 17. This was one of her last teenage roles before she became 18 and tried to bust out into playing adults. This was a role that a lot of actors did not want to perform in. MGM pretty much called in every one of their big names to play in this movie to watch this adaptation of Louisa May Alcott, you're immediately struck by the fact that Elizabeth Taylor is in this. She was not the biggest name at the time, but certainly a couple years later, it would be weird to see her fourth build or however far down the line she is compared to June Allison, Peter Lawford, Margaret O'Brien, who is considered more of a star attraction at the time than she was. But she makes Amy March her own. The movie changes the order of the girls' ages to accommodate Elizabeth Taylor. So Amy March is technically the youngest daughter, but they make her the second to youngest so that Margaret O'Brien could play Beth. What I appreciate about that change is, much like A Date with Judy, we get to see her, Amy March, being this catty, rich girl on the outside, poor girl in reality. And she gets to do some really good comedy, too, which we don't often consider Elizabeth Taylor comedian. But she gets to do some great one-liners here, whether she's talking about using bad grammar to talk about how her teacher is obviously not understanding that she is a wealthy woman and she has friends in high places. I just love her snooty accent, which works really well in this movie, or the weird obsession that they give her with food, which would become a muckle later as Elizabeth Taylor did struggle with weight. But I love watching the sequences where She is trying to hold on to food because it is that time period where you're going without. So there's a moment where she's at the Hummels, which is the poor family that takes all their stuff. And she's got the popovers and she's playing this game with the kids. One for you, one for you and one for me. And she's taking bites. And it's just really fun, pure comedy that she was not given enough opportunities to showcase. The blonde hair is a bit ridiculous, yes, and they do tamp down her growing bosom. I just love the performance so much. If it was the role that was going to transition her from child to adult, she did it really well. I believe we've discussed this. I have not seen any version of Little Women. I do not even know the story. How do you not even know 
the story. How are you I know it's about in this four, era? I know it's about four women and I probably know two or three of their names and that's about it. <laughs> I do not know how you've lived on this earth for 25 years having never read or seen any version. There's a version literally for your age bracket. <laughs> I know. I'm well aware of all the versions and I'm interested in all the versions. It's one of those things like The Godfather where I have to find a really good opportunity to watch it for the first time. I'm also very lost on which one to start with. I'm most tempted to go in chronological order and start with a 33 and then go 49. I've done chronologically. As somebody who says that the 33 version is the least good version, everything gets better. Regardless, you should see the 49 one because it's such a Technicolor wonderkind that it's a lot of fun. I would have mad respect for you if you watched a double feature of The Godfather in Any Little Women. Just the transition <laughs> alone would be amazing. We just need to kill two birds with one stone here. Little Women and The Godfather, that's the perfect double feature. We call it Little Godfather Weekend and it would be amazing. <laughs> Maybe if we get to a certain amount of followers. Patreon hole, everyone. Gable and Lombard and Samantha watching The Godfather and Any Little Women. (laughs) If I had been at the fest this year, I believe they showed the 49 version. I I was there. See, there you go. I probably would have seen it. Heard that Margaret O'Brien canceled last minute or was that the one she went to? Oh, God. Now that you mentioned it, she did not not go. She didn't go to that one. I remember like, oh, I would have changed my mind last minute. I'm going to see them. I'm definitely going to see them. And it looks really cute. I'm here for it. I will probably like them. Here is a short little ad for our Patreon. If you are a fan of old Hollywood, classic entertainment, and the joy of pop culture history in all its forms, please subscribe to our Patreon page like these wonderful people. Christine Meyer, Danny, David Floyd, Jacob Haller, and MCF. Our Patreon page is located at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. That's ticklish B-I-Z. If we can reach 30 subscribers, you'll be treated to a full special episode looking at the 1976 TV biopic Gable and Lombard starring Jill Clayburgh and James Brolin as the iconic pair. Is the movie everything you'd hope it to be? And take that to mean whatever you want it to. Subscribe to Ticklish Biz and help us reach that goal. A special reminder, if we can get to 100 subscribers, we are looking forward to posting a deep dive into an infamous movie in ticklish business circles. Does love truly mean never having to say you're sorry? Well, if we can get to 100 subscribers, you'll get to hear all of our opinions on love story. Trust me, there's a lot of them. Beginning in May 2022, we'll begin a brand new season of Based on a True podcast episodes looking at the king of rock and roll himself, appropriately entitled Being Elvis. The special series will examine a new Elvis biopic each week, beginning with Kurt Russell's memorable turn in 1979's Elvis and coming to a close with director Baz Luhrmann's new movie based on the singer's life entitled, you guessed it, Elvis. Now, back to the show. Samantha, what's your number two? My number two is, and if you really are looking at Elizabeth Taylor at her most glamorous, this is a strong contender. It's the VIPs from 1963. Ooh, I have not seen this one. So I'm excited for you to argue why I should. I'm just going to start rattling off the cast and hopefully that reels you in before anything else. So you have Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, Orson Welles, 
Rod Taylor using an Australian accent, Louise Jordan playing the other man in the Burton Taylor relationship, Margaret Rutherford earning an Oscar. It's just such a wild cast of characters. And you have a very, very young, as Rod Taylor's assistant, Maggie Smith. There are so many avenues of thought I could go down right now. I'm going to wrap that in a bow and give that to you. That's the first thing. (laughs) Elizabeth Taylor, I need to find what, who designed her wardrobe for that film because it's her at her most glamorous, truly. She has the long hair. She's starting to get that bit of a tan that she would get in the 60s. And she wears all of her own jewelry. So these really magnificent pieces. I'm such a nerd about Elizabeth Taylor's jewelry. I actually own a piece. I have a brooch from one of the Julian's auctions that they had for Elizabeth. If you are in the auction market, I believe that Julian's is auctioning off more Elizabeth Taylor clothes at their July auction. I believe 99% of Elizabeth Taylor auctions are caftan, caftan, caftan. Gucci sweaters and a lot of designer outfits that I wish I could fit into. Unfortunately, I don't believe that Liz and I are the same size, which is sad. Seeing costume design by Pierre Cardin, but he was uncredited. A ton of people worked on this. She looks amazing. No matter how many hands were in the pot, no matter whose hands was in the pot, she looks amazing. It's such a soap opera. It's so dramatic. Literally, if you cut it into 30-minute segments, it would be a soap opera. It's that perfect guilty pleasure, love drama of the 60s with her and Burton that you want to just gobble up. I am all for this. You had me at a love triangle involving Liz, Burton, and Louis Jordan. I don't know how hot that could get, and it's It's the 60s. That's just shocking to me. And she definitely shows her cleavage off in this film more than any other. So if it's not hot enough already. She was like, listen, there's two hot dudes in this movie. I'm just going to have to emphasize everything at this point because it's too hot. Everything she has going on in the 60s. I'm very aesthetically drawn to certain Liz films as opposed to others. The early to mid 50s, I wane a little bit she really hit her strides in the late 40s and the early to mid 60s those are the two liz eras that i love the most i feel like i'm more of a 50s liz gal which is bizarre that i would gravitate towards that era i get more into them for sure there are a few that i still haven't seen like elephant walk which i don't think is necessarily going to be any good but i still want to see I watched about 30 minutes of Raintree County the other day, and it's just so long and boring that I couldn't do it. And Montgomery Cliff's face changing by the scene is just depressing. There's a lot of 50s Liz movies I have not gotten to yet. That era is the one that I love the most, which is a good segue into my number one, which is not an original choice, but it's 1952's a place in the sun. No. Okay. Again, fantastic choice. If, if we're talking about the real essential Elizabeth Taylor film, you've encapsulated it pretty well. A place in the sun is just that perfect early 50s Elizabeth at her best. I can't wait to hear all the things you love about it. Should say I misspoke. It's from 1951. It was nominated for the Oscars in 1952, which by the way, shocking thing, Liz was not nominated for an Oscar for this movie, which is utterly hard to believe. I'm not surprised right around those early 50s years were really tough years 
acting wise, it's more of Monty's film. But Elizabeth, just looking at her, she's pure heaven. She it was has, very close to making my list. She has one of the best intros in movie history on par with the first close-up of John Wayne in Stagecoach. It's that type of moment where you're watching a star being made. This is George Stevens' directed adaptation of Theodore Dreiser's An American Tragedy, which had already been made in the early 30s with Sylvia Sidney. You can go back and listen to our episode. We did an entire one on this movie with Liz Taylor and Monty Cliff biographer Charles Casillo that you can get more in-depth information on. But Montgomery Cliff plays a guy named George Eastman. He's down on his luck. He goes to get a job at an uncle's factory and meets a woman named Alice Tripp, played by Shelley Winters. They engage in this affair that I love that the movie in 1951 does not shy away from saying they are having premarital sex. Everything changes when he meets this rich girl, Angela Vickers, played by Liz Taylor, and he realizes that he's got to get rid of Alice because she's also pregnant and she is ruining everything. So let's just say there is a boat ride to hell that is so beautifully filmed. Everything about this movie is beautifully filmed. I know I said when we did the episode on A Place in the Sun that a lot of people point to Casablanca, maybe Mildred Pierce as the quintessential example of old Hollywood style and filmmaking. I say it's a place in the sun. Beautiful A-list stars, beautiful settings, beautiful costumes, cinematography that you want to live in. Everything in this movie is perfect. This is the movie that famously started her friendship with Montgomery Cliff that would last until he died. And while Monty's character, George and Alice have this very sexual relationship, he has just as much sexual chemistry with Liz Taylor as Angela. They just want to eat each other practically by the way that they look at each other. The way that she calls herself mama to him, it's such a horny movie. If we're talking about thirsty films, this is the thirstiest. And it is great because like you mentioned with the VIPs, like attracts like, and you don't get that more effectively than in this movie. And I think the fact too that Liz and Monty became such good friends You also feel that sense of connection and union between them in their sequences. Maybe it's not necessarily as strong as sexual pull, although considering Monty Clift was same-sex oriented, he still is able to act. I'm buying that everybody would have been sleeping with everybody in this movie because they're all just beautiful. But there's a deeper connection that you get that's subtextual between the two of them, considering their deep friendship. It's a perfect movie. If you are looking for something that's just hot, This is the one I always point to. I will interject and say Monty went on record as saying that the only woman that he ever wanted to have sex with was Elizabeth Taylor. Because he was a smart man. He was a very smart man. Elizabeth Taylor, looks-wise, is number one. Didn't Liz also say that if he had been straight, that she would have married him? Or am I misinterpreting that? I don't know if I've heard that, but I'm sure they would have. And they were incredibly close. She saved his life, of course. And their whole relationship is amazing. Bookworthy, obviously, (laughs) which I'm so glad that's finally been covered. But this movie is so incredible. I love it. It's not one that I go back to as often as I should, but here you have number one woman, really number one man right up there with Ty. Monty is maybe second, maybe first. It really is a photo finish in terms of looks especially in this movie. They both have it going on. If you want to see two of the most 
beautiful people on screen together. This is the movie to watch. It's such a juicy story. You really get into it. Everybody does their part. I love Shelly Winters, of course. Elizabeth, I hate to say this is a bit of a step back for her compared to some other movies that she would go on to make. Stuff like A Date with Judy, where her character had some good substance, but I still love watching her in it. I can never get over this movie. The dress, the white dress. Talk about costumes. That's one of my all-time favorite movie costumes. What shocks me, too, is that the year before this, she did Father of the Bride, which was supposed to usher in her adulthood. She got married around the same time. I think she also got divorced by the time this movie came out. So for her to be a divorcee and make this movie where she's the other woman in such a beautifully sexual but murderous film... Oh my gosh, if we're talking about a woman who understood publicity and the need to make movies that reflected, I don't know how much awareness she had of the films that she was picking, but it's hard not to feel like she was like, you know what? I did all these cutesy teeny bopper things. I got married, I got divorced. So what better way to do that than to play this type of character that while Angela is not a villain per se, which would have been really easy to make her this other woman who's like, screw that chick you threw her in the water that's cool she's not like that she is a person with a soul but at the same time there had to be this awareness of what this type of role would look like to an audience she was really one of the few actresses that understood how an audience would look at her and see her personal life come through in those roles she really was similar to jean harlow in that respect where a lot of her films did reflect what was going on in her life It's so funny that you cite this as one of the really good examples of old Hollywood filmmaking, because to me, there are definitely very distinct eras. I am so drawn to the early to mid 50s fan magazines and publicity and publicity culture that really existed uniquely in the 50s. And Elizabeth was such a strong part of that. And I think this movie really was too. I watched this and I'm thinking, I'm sure they're trying to get her makeup look in this movie and the clothes that she wears are going to be in between the ads in all the magazines. So her Helen Rose dress from Father of the Bride, I mean, became something that women were emulating and buying the patterns so that they could redo them. One of the first influencers in that regard. She really was. She was so ahead of her time. I mean, especially with her perfume line and her activism, she would have killed it on Instagram today. White diamonds, man. That's still a scent. For what it is. (laughs) (laughs) What's your number one, Samantha? My number one, this is really my ultimate guilty pleasure movie. Not just my ultimate guilty pleasure Elizabeth Taylor movie. This is my ultimate guilty pleasure movie. It's Butterfield 8 from 1960. Oh, I have not seen this one and I have no good excuse for why I have not. It's the Oscar film. If you love the campy early 60s melodramatic, he's grabbing on her wrist so she can't leave. They have this torrid affair. That's this movie. (laughs) She looks so glamorous. Some of those really beautiful early 60s gowns with the low cut all satin. So pretty. She looks amazing. She's opposite Eddie, but she doesn't really have all that much connection to him. If you had watched this without knowing that they were married at the time, you definitely would not have known. But she really does sizzle with Lawrence Harvey. 
he's not one of the actors that we talk about when it comes to the classic film actors. He's making his debut on Summer Under the Stars this year, which is really awesome. I always find him to be a very cold, formal actor. So I'm interested to see if that's cold and true for all of his films, or maybe he comes alive in something else. It really works here because I totally understand what you're saying. I've seen him in a couple other movies and he strikes me like that too. Elizabeth plays this mentally ill. She's a bit of a train wreck. She can't get her life together model named Gloria Wandress. And what she does, it's like Breakfast at Tiffany's where you say she's a model, but she's really a call girl. But she's trying to escape that part of her life. And she starts an affair with this bored, rich guy who has his whole life handed to him and he doesn't want it. They start miscommunicating. There's drama. There's other people involved. I don't want to spoil the ending, but the ending is just such soap. It really is. (laughs) But it's so good. My eyes are glued to the screen. I just eat up every second they're on screen together. And she's so good in it. I really do think that it was Oscar worthy. My absolute favorite part of the whole film is the beginning because the whole title sequence and everything, she tells the story about her waking up in another man's apartment. She sees that her dress is torn and she sees that he has left her money in an envelope. And she puts the two and two together that he's paying her for sex when he's actually paying for her dress to be repaired. But without a word, there's not a line of dialogue in the whole scene. You see like anger of her thinking that that's what he was paying her for. And she writes no sale on his mirror and lipstick, puts nothing on but his wife's mink and storms out of the apartment. Every moment of it that Elizabeth acts out without saying anything is just perfect. It's one of my favorite film openers too. You have convinced me to watch two movies now, so I'm prioritizing (laughs) this on my list. In the 60s really hit her stride. She dominated the 60s. That's what I'm saying. A lot of people talk about her in the 50s and how strong of a personality she was, and she was. But Elizabeth in the 60s is where I'm with it. You brought up this was her Oscar win. She was nominated five times. She also won the Gene Herschel Humanitarian Award in 93. Out of all of the films she was nominated for, she was nominated first in 1958 for Raintree County. She was nominated again in 59 for Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, again in 60 for Suddenly Last Summer, winning in 61 for Butterfield 8, and then she would win again in 67 for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Samantha, Do you think that's the right order? Should she have won for anything else or any of her previous nominations? I wish that she had been nominated for Cleopatra, regardless of the insanity that is that production. She is very, very good in it. I don't know. Cleopatra is just such a phoning it in course she's going to get nominated for that movie. The nominees that year for Butterfield 8, of course, we know Liz won. Her competition was Greer Garson for Sunrise at Campobello, Shirley MacLaine for The Apartment. Exactly. I was like, I knew that was a tough year. Deborah Carr, again, for The Sundowners, and Melina Mercury for Never on Sunday. I don't know, Samantha. It's hard for me to think that Shirley didn't deserve that Oscar. I am going to have to agree with you because I have such a strong affinity for The Apartment. It's definitely an all-time favorite movie for Elizabeth really turned in a fantastic performance, but she did turn in so many. She was one that was, I feel like, really overlooked. I'm glad she had as many nominations as she did, 
She always thought that the Oscar that she got for Butterfield 8 was a pity Oscar because she almost died. I would have loved to see her get an Oscar for, be it Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. I think a lot of people think she deserved an Oscar for that. If not Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, I would say Suddenly Last Summer would be a fantastic contender. In case you're curious about who she was up against in 1967, that win for Virginia Woolf, it was like shooting fish in a barrel because the nominees were not strong, in my opinion, that year. It was Ida Kaminska for The Shop on Main Street, Vanessa Redgrave for Morgan, Anouk Ami for A Man and a Woman, and Lynn Redgrave for Georgie Girl. That's how you know it's the late 60s. A lot of foreign imports and Brit stuff. No offense to people that love any of those performances. We all knew she was going to win. And it definitely, especially later in her life, it's one of her iconic performances. If you pick the five essential Elizabeth Taylor performances, that would definitely be on it. But she has so many. Cat on a Hotchin Roof. I'm very surprised she didn't earn a nod for it. Did you say that she did? Susan Hayward, yeah. Certainly last summer, I would never take away Sophia Loren's Oscar. Sophia Loren definitely deserves it over she Elizabeth. She did not win over Elizabeth Taylor that year for Suddenly Last Summer. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm thinking of the 60 to 61, not the 59 to 60. For Suddenly Last Summer, unfortunately, it's easy to see why Liz didn't win because Catherine Hepburn was also nominated in the same category for Suddenly Last Summer, and that tends to split the vote. Mm -hmm. Audrey Hepburn was also nominated that year for The Nun Story, Doris Day for Pillow Talk, and the winner was Simone Signoret for Room at the Top. I haven't seen it, so I can't really comment, but... Sounds wrong. (laughs) I love love any opportunity to give Elizabeth Taylor an Oscar. I love any opportunity for Audrey Hepburn to get an Oscar. (laughs) I haven't seen Nun Story either. Any honorable mentions that you want to include? I feel like we've done a pretty good job covering her life. I have a couple that I would want to throw out. Cleopatra, we didn't talk about it. It was a huge, huge financial disaster. Almost killed Fox. But it's my Liz guilty pleasure where yours is Butterfield 8 minus Cleopatra. I don't watch the whole movie because it's ridiculously long. But if we're talking about Liz at one of her sexiest peaks in the 60s, the costuming there does not leave a whole lot to the imagination in many scenes. It's the first moment when Burton meets Taylor. And oh, my God, it is a very horny movie. That's considering that the whole first hour, she's stuck having to act opposite wooden Rex Harrison. So apologies to her for that. 1950s Father of the Bride, it's not her movie at all. It's Spencer Tracy's. I would say it's not nearly as entertaining as Father's Little Dividend either, which is the better movie. But it's an iconic Liz performance. Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, the movie that she did win the Oscar for. This one's often a hard sit for me. I really got to be in the mood for just how ugly and angry it is as a film, but to watch her and Richard Burton far with each other verbally for two hours is perfection. And this is a guilty pleasure. This is probably the first Liz Taylor movie I ever saw, but it's 1994's The Flintstones. She plays Pearl Slaghubel, Wilma's mother. It is a thankless cameo, but to watch Liz Taylor show up, swathed in 1994 prehistoric minks and diamonds. It's making fun of the Liz mythos, but it does it in such an amazing way that I remember being a child in 94 watching this movie thinking, who is this woman? I need to know more about her. Thank you, Flintstones. If you've done nothing else as a movie of the 90s, you made me an Elizabeth Taylor fan. 
I actually love that. I feel like she had such a long career that there are going to be so many that we leave out. I'm, of course, partial to her studio era films, but I did find a few more. I would definitely say Giant. I watched a really great TCM interstitial talking about how much of a feminist her character is and how strong of a character she is in Giant. It gives me such a greater respect for it. I definitely want to see it again. I would also say the last time I saw Paris, she has such a great complex role in that film. And it's really thrown under the bus. It's not given a lot of credit because it's in public domain. That's really the biggest reason why his legacy is so spotty. But when you actually watch a good print of the film, it's excellent. One last one that I'm going to sneak in is The Taming of the Shrew. She and Burton That almost so made good. my list. Yes. They're so good. So fun. It's another one that's really overlooked, but I love that one. I did want to throw out, if we're talking one more thankless cameo, she has a very brief, you have to pause the movie to actually see her cameo in Anne of the Thousand Days in 1969. She plays a courtesan that bursts into the room when Catherine of Aragon is praying. You can tell right away if you pause it just right, it is her face and it is her bosom because that's all you can see. She has a mask on. It is such a fun cameo. She wanted to play Anne Boleyn. They told her no. She found a way to be in the movie anyway. I was fortunate to run into Kate Burton, Richard Burton's daughter, at an event, and I brought up that cameo. She's very happy that I noticed it. That's also one for the list. But listeners, you can let us know any Elizabeth Taylor movie that we forgot to mention. Tell us why it's your favorite. You can email it to us at ticklishbiz at gmail.com. You can also send it to us via Twitter at ticklish underscore biz, Facebook, Instagram, or TikTok over at ticklishbiz. Please be sure to follow us on Patreon at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. We just wrapped up our six-week series on being Elvis, including the 2022 Boz Lerman movie that just came out. You can listen to all of those over on Patreon. We have a bunch more bonus content coming up. We give out pins, free movies. You get access to these episodes two days early. Please consider helping us out so that we can get some of our bonus goals met, which include reviewing the 1976 made-for-TV movie Gable and Lombard, and getting Samantha to watch The Godfather and or Little Women. Who doesn't want that? That would be amazing, wouldn't it? I need my <laughs> film education, you guys. Help support this young woman's film education. Also, please follow us on all social media. Like and subscribe to us. And make sure you're getting all the latest news. And Ticklish Business is available on all podcast apps including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Help us out there on Apple Podcasts. We would love a new review. We've not gotten one in a while. Let us know what you think. If you like us, if you don't like us, if you don't like us, maybe don't leave us a review. But we will be back in two weeks with a new episode. Till then. Bye.